following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, I have something to say to you. You're not going to like it. You're just kids. You're just kids. Whoa. Now, when I was growing up, to um, those who would say that to me, um, I would receive them as fighting words. I didn't like to hear that when I was about your age. And I'm sure none of you like to hear that when folks say that to you. I would get so mad whenever anyone said something like that to me. Why is that? Well, when a grown-up says to you, you're just a kid, what he's really saying to you is, you can't do this. You can't handle this. You can't help me. You can't. You can't. You can't. You're just a kid. No one likes to hear those words. No one likes to hear, you can't do this. You can't handle this. But many times it is true, isn't it? Well, as you get older, people will stop saying those things to you. They're going to start coming to you because you can do things for them. And they're going to ask you to do things, perhaps even demand you to do things. But then you're going to get to a point, and perhaps some of you here have gotten to this point, where you're going to say to yourself, you know, you're not a kid anymore. You can't do that anymore. You can't do this. You can't handle it. You need to find someone to help you. And you know what? That's even more frustrating, isn't it? than being the child, being told by someone else you can't do it, to have to come to that conclusion yourself. You see, we all have our limits, and limits are very frustrating. Those limits that remind us we're not superheroes, we're not invincible, we're not everywhere all the time, and we can't do everything. But they're also very humbling in very good ways. They teach us that we need God to pick us up and to carry us. And the good news is that he can and he will do just that because he loves and cares for his people. Christ makes that abundantly clear in his teaching ministry. In fact, here on the Sermon on the Mount, we see it all over the place. Man's need, he can't do such and such. But then God's loving care, but I can do such and such, God says. And then Christ's gracious instruction so take that and go forward and do such and such. As Christ has been preaching his program of discipleship, of making disciples of the nations, and particularly of this small band of followers he's gathered to himself, he's confronted these men with their limits. His standards are high. His calling is demanding even more demanding than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And as we read in our passage immediately before this, persecution is coming. At this point in verses 13 to 16, our Lord gives great encouragement and direction to his disciples, and he uses four illustrations to do it. First, salt, and then light, a city on a hill, and a household lamp. 
And when Christ says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, these two things go together, though I broke them up into two sermons. What he shows us is that he regards his followers as critically important for his mission. He regards his followers as crucially important for what it is he's doing in the world. He powerfully declares not you're just kids or you can't do this, but rather that they are able by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God alone to accomplish much good in his world. They are salt and light, indispensably important resources. We looked at verse 13 some weeks ago, and today, with the Lord's help, I will seek to show you that Christ uses an illustration of light to explain your place, work, and worth in the world. The text is very clear in verse 16, your good works must bring glory to God in the world, and they do so only insofar as they express the gospel of salvation for sinners, but there's much more that can be said. Christ uses an illustration of light to say these things, to explain your place, your work, and worth in the world. As you can probably guess, we're going to break this down under three headings. First, your place in the world, your work in the world, and then your worth in the world. Your place, your work, and your worth in the world. First, look at your place in the world under verse 14 here. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Really, a mountaintop cannot be hidden. And there's two things that Christ is communicating here in these words. First, he's telling us what the world is like. It's a dark world. But then he tells us what our place is in this dark world. We have a very visible, conspicuous place. How is it that the world is dark? That's the opposite of light. That's what Christ is driving at. How is it that the world is dark? Well, the world is trapped in the darkness of sin. Perhaps you remember what we're told in Matthew chapter 4, verse 16, about Christ coming into the world, and that is that he came as what? A great light to those who were dwelling in darkness, a land of darkness. And we can expand that not just to the people of Israel, though that was surely the primary or first reference point, but we can expand that to the whole world. Our whole world was plunged into the darkness of sin. In Adam's fall. And Christ comes as a seed of the woman, as the light, to bring light to this dark world. And we all know how important light is. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and you stumble around at your bedside or maybe through your dark bedroom? And even though it's a very familiar place, you're still very careful because you're not sure what you're going to bump into and you're looking for the light switch. You want to turn on the light. Or imagine you go into a dark shed and you have your toolbox. If you can't see what's in there, do you want to reach your hand in there? No. You might cut it on a, a saw blade, or you might stab it through a, um, a, a screwdriver or a knife or something. You want to be very careful in the dark. Indeed, you want light. And where I grew up, the dark place that was especially scary was a dark alleyway. And anyone with you know, any kind of common sense knows you don't go down the dark alleyways in the middle of the night. Bad things happen in those places. Well, that's the kind of world that we all enter into. And that's the kind of world Christ comes. And that's the kind of world his disciples are in, where the way of the wicked is at play. As it says in Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness, 
They do not know over what they stumble. There's ignorance and confusion in the dark. And as Christ says in Matthew 6.23, just in our next chapter, when he uses light in a different way, he opens up a bit more of, of his teaching regarding this analogy. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Speaking of moral darkness and confusion. And it's just like physical darkness. We stumble around in it to our peril. It's a very dangerous condition to be in. But then he says to his people... He says right here in our text, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So what kind of place do you have in this dark world? You have a very visible place. As I said, the word here for hill is really could be rendered mountaintop. Imagine a great city on top of a mountain. And though there not be any light for miles around, surely that city would be like a beacon. It would be like a lighthouse set up on a high place. The light would shine and perhaps even give illumination to all the land around it. And that's how God describes his followers. These people that he just said, you're going to be reviled, slandered, persecuted. You have a lot of limits on you. But this is what I'm saying about you. You are the light of the world. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. How do we see this and what Christ does? Well, in his ministry, what Jesus comes to do, and Paul puts it well in Colossians chapter 1, but I'll just paraphrase. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, who are made heirs with him, are heirs of a kingdom of light. That is, they're translated, they're pulled out of a kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom city of light, so to speak. Those who were stumbling around in the dark, now have sure footing. They know what's around them. And this is the very description that the psalmist gives us of the mountain city of God. That is Mount Zion, the city of God's habitation. Psalm 87, 1-3 says, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And we heard just a few of those glorious things from Isaiah chapter 60 in our Old Testament reading this evening. And moving on in God's cosmos, both the created cosmos. Eden was set as, a, as something of a garden city on a mountaintop. And Zion is always on a mountain. And the new Jerusalem is descending from above, from a high place. Whatever God creates, whatever he redeems, has this structure to it. And... As the church then takes these characteristics to itself by Christ's appointment, we understand now the church, the new Jerusalem, to be a, a place of human society under Christ's leadership, a place of civilization and safety and security, and a place of refuge for those seeking refuge from the darkness. And that's how Christ characterizes the church. Do we believe that about Antioch? When we pray for this church, are we praying for a small business? No, we're not here selling things. Are we praying for a, um, for a social club, like the golf course next door? No, we're not just a group of people who enjoy one another's company, though that may be true. I hope it is true. 
What we're praying for is an outpost of this kingdom of light, this heavenly kingdom that Christ is establishing. An outpost where sinners can flee for refuge and security. And in all of our Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, that's what I hope we keep in mind and bear in mind about our identity. And so Christ has described your place in the world, his moral cosmos, his social universe, if you want to put it that way. In short, your place in the middle of darkness is one of God's light. Put this another way, in verse 14, he sets the stage. He has the lights on, the camera's rolling, and what comes next? Lights, camera, action. And that's what we see in verse 15. Having seen your place in the world, we can now look at your work in the world. What it is Christ intends for you to do and and really to function in the world. Look at verse 15 with me. He follows up on this image of a city and he says, Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. This is one of Christ's favorite illustrations. If you listen to a preacher long enough, you're going to pick up on a few favorite illustrations, things that he uses Images he uses, items he uses to illustrate meaning in a variety of contexts. He might even put it to different use. For example, a ship or a car or speed limits. These are all very common illustrations. Hopefully not his wife or his children all too often. But Christ's, perhaps his favorite illustration, but certainly one of them, is this illustration of the lampstand of the light that's set up on a stand to serve a very conspicuous, obvious function in the house. If you don't believe me, look at Mark 4, 21, Luke 8, 16, and then Luke 11, 33 to 36. We're in three different places for three different purposes. Christ uses this illustration in addition to the one here in Matthew chapter 5. It's the same picture in different contexts. Christ loves talking about the lampstand. And his point in saying it here in Matthew 5, particularly to a group of people he just said are going to be reviled, slandered, and persecuted for being Christians, his point is don't hide who you are in Christ Jesus. Set it on a lampstand. We can be very hesitant to tell people that we're Christians. And I'm not saying you should be obnoxious. Surely we all need to be wise and patient even shrewd at times. But what Christ is saying is, don't shy away from being who I've called you to be. I have a purpose for you, and that purpose is a purpose of a lampstand, not a roach motel in the corner, okay? And so that's what Christ is saying. He wants you to be conspicuous. This is how you work. Bold in Christ. Dear Christian, are you fearful of what your neighbors or your family members might think of you, what your coworkers, what even your employers might think of you as you hold fast to the truth? Be wise in all things. Don't offend for any reason other than the gospel. But when you're challenged to do something that would mask the fact that you're a Christian, that would make you fit in with everybody else, be it to adopt a certain kind of language or to go to a certain kind of restaurant or, or movie or whatever it is, or even to engage in some dark deed or, or lie on balance sheets in the workplace. Be very open and say, I can't do that with you. Well, why not? I'm a Christian. 
I'm not my own. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, both body and soul. And I know that would not please him. I can't do that. In so doing, you're going to set your light on the lampstand. Now, that's a negative illustration. The very positive one is the things you do do with your children, with your family. Fathers, one way you can set the lampstand up in your own home is to engage very purposefully in family worship. This is something that is so radically countercultural for fathers to take up the mantle of leadership in their home and especially of spiritual leadership and to walk their children through books of the Bible or to catechize their children or even teach them how to sing the great hymns and songs and uh, psalms of the faith. So brothers and sisters, consider what I say in terms of setting your light on the lampstand. But why should you do this? Christ says, he tells us, it gives light to all who are in the house. This is a very interesting uh, shift that Christ makes from the illustration of a city on a mountain, and particularly that draws us to Zion. Remember, he's talking to Jews. What are they going to be thinking of? Draws us to Jerusalem up on Mount Zion. And then he shifts immediately to the picture of a house. And you wouldn't be wrong to think that Christ is using a domestic image. Surely everyone would know what the lamp in their own living room, how that functions. But he uses what's called the definite article. Notice in our translation it says, um, the lampstand, the house. Now that could just mean the particular main light in your house. But keeping in mind Christ's audience, what he's really doing is he's driving to God's house, God's temple where there is a very conspicuous and prominent golden lampstand with seven lights, shining light in particular places before the presence of God. Numbers 8 describes this. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. Aaron therefore did so. He mounted its lamps at the front of the lampstand, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold, for its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. Christ has a particular function for his church in his household, which is pictured for us in the Old Testament in the tabernacle and in the temple. But in the New Testament, that picture is fulfilled in the church. Christ, who is himself the light of the world, then gives his light to his people to shine in the world. That's one of the curious things here, that elsewhere Jesus will refer to himself, particularly in John's gospel, as the light of the world. But then he follows fast on that statement. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have, possess, the light of light, or the light of life. And if you possess light, if you hold a flashlight or a lantern in your hand, what happens? You spread light. It shines around you. And that's the dynamic that Christ is hitting on here. Verses 14 and 15. They gave us your place in the world, but then also your work in the world as followers of Christ, shining forth the light of Christ and his message of salvation in a very dark world. Lights, camera, and action. But then we are right to ask, so what? So what? We have all this. We have this cosmos, this created order of things. 
But so what? What does it matter? Look at verse 16. That gives us our answer. Verse 16 comes in at this point with your worth in the world. I'm using the word worth here kind of in two ways. First, your own worth. The value of the disciples. Remember, these are men who needed encouragement at this point in Christ's message, having just heard of persecution. But also, what makes you worth having around in the world. What the end game is. Look at verse 16 with me. Christ brings it all home. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I actually would prefer it if we translated it even more emphatically. Christ saying, so shine your light, giving an order. Shine your light before the face of men such that they may see your good works and that they may glorify your Father, your all's Father, who is in heaven. Christ gives an imperative here at the beginning of verse 16. He, and in that imperative, he makes known to you, dear believer, O church, your shining glory. Why it is we get up in the morning. Why it is we get up to do good works, to take care of our families, to tend to our children's needs, to tell people about Jesus, to go to work, to be responsible, to order our households well, whatever the case may be. And what he says here is shine your light. Again, using that common illustration. Well, what, what are these good works that Christ is talking about? What does it look like to shine your light? What is it that men are supposed to see in your life? Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, tells us. <coughs> it says, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. In other words, God defines what these good works are. We don't make them up. And though surely our intent must be good for the works to be counted good, our intention is not what makes them good in and of themselves. The confession continues, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end, eternal life. It's a splendid description of good works. But notice it all begins with being rooted in God's word. God defines good works. And where does he summarize this for us? Children, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. And to summarize that further, love God and love your neighbors. And in these Ten Commandments, we have good works defined for us. Why does Christ bring this in here? Because he says, um, shine your light before men in such a way that they may see your good works. Even when persecution is at your doorstep, you are to live a godly and righteous life before men so that they know that you are different, that you indeed are Christian. 
That means abstaining from some things, and that means doing other things that the world around us are not doing. Well, how does this square with what Christ is going to say later where he says, do good deeds in secret, pray in secret, give your alms in secret? What Christ is saying here is not a matter of being indiscreet or being boastful or proud. Notice the point of verse 16. Do these good works before men such that they see them and glorify your Father who is in heaven, not glorify you. So there's a particular way of doing these things in public that will bring glory to God rather than glory to yourself. Now, surely, you shouldn't feel ashamed if someone says, man, you're a really good father or mother, or you're a really good guy or gal. I really appreciate you. You should welcome that and say, thank you very much. To God be the glory. You can even say it woodenly like that, just in response, kind of as a reflex. But what you're really after is something like this. There's something different about you. There's something different about your family. You have... You have peace. Now, those of us with a bunch of kids, if you've ever heard that, you kind of laugh at that. But haven't, have you ever heard that from somebody? You know, I've lived in some rough neighborhoods. I've had multiple neighbors say that to us. And usually it's just because there's mom and dad at home. They see us pray together. They notice these things. And in those moments, they're not necessarily glorifying you, but they notice that you have something else. And at that time, then you can clarify and say, you know, God has been my help through every age of my family's existence, every age of my own existence. To God be the glory. And it gives you a real opportunity there to give glory to God. Now, there's something else about good works here that you need to understand. And this is particularly important for you boys and girls. You may grow up in a Christian home. You may have lots of Christian friends. You may even believe some basics that there is a God and he does judge sin. But in order for your good works to be recognized by God as indeed good works, you must be born again. This is the product of the Holy Spirit. What does the confession say? These are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And you cannot generate that on your own. You cannot manufacture. You can't make your faith. It's not like you get a box of Legos with a bunch of bricks in it and you have the directions to make faith. No, that's not how this works. Rather, God intervenes supernaturally in your life and he changes your heart and he gives you this faith. And then out of that renewed heart then comes these good works as an evidence of what God has done that he has planted you as a tree by streams of living water. And so when Christ says, let your light shine before men in such a way, he's saying that specifically and exclusively to Christians. Backing up a little bit, when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he actually emphasizes the you such that we could translate it, you and you alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Why is that? Because God made you that way. The Holy Spirit works this in you and then draws these good works out of you. What he works in, he then works out. And this is the good news of the gospel. You must be born again. 
And how are people born again to a living faith and a living hope? Well, by the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that Christ came into this world to save sinners, that the Spirit might have his work in the world, turning men's hearts to himself. And wherever the word of God is read in sincerity and truth, wherever it's preached with power from on high by the Holy Spirit, it will accomplish all that for which it was sent out. And so even here in our midst, do you hear the call to Christian discipleship where Christ says, follow me, follow me and be the light of the world. Follow me and let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Do you hear his voice calling and shall you arise and follow him? Well, to what end are we following the Lord Jesus Christ? Here at the end of verse 16, he says, Glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is man's chief end. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Only redeemed sinners can truly glorify God. Doesn't matter how polite you are. Doesn't matter how good you are at following checklists and rules that mom and dad might put up on the fridge or the wall of the house or that your employer might give you, or even your own moral code of honor or conduct. Isn't it amazing how many folks we go to when we go door to door in our neighborhoods or when we're talking to friends and family members in casual conversation when it turns to spiritual things and you ask, you know, how is it that you're going to get into heaven? What are you going to say to God if he were to say, why should I let you through these gates? Well, you know, I've been a pretty good person. I've done some good things. I followed the Ten Commandments. No, I am a redeemed sinner. And though I fail, my Lord is gracious and kind, and I trust in him. And though I am not yet what I shall be, I'm not what I once was. And I see the evidences of a lively and fruitful faith at work, and I give praise to God who has done it. Notice the language that Christ uses here at the end. Of verse 16, he says, your father who is in heaven. And then if you have the pew Bible open, just look at the bottom of the next page in Matthew 6, 9. How is it that Christ instructs his disciples to pray? He says, our father who is in heaven. It's almost the exact same language. Just the pronoun's different because he's addressing them in one place and he's instructing them in what they should say in the other place. Who can call God his father? Redeemed sinners. Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is them, and them alone, who can then glorify God through the doing of good works in the eyes of men. What are these good works? Love God, love your neighbor. Peter puts it well in 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So outward deeds of piety, outward deeds of, um, of doing good to your fellow man. Paul puts it in Philippians 2, 14 to 16 this way. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Boys and girls, do you hear that? Do all things, even the things your parents tell you to do, <coughs> without grumbling or disputing. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent Children of God, that is, people who can call God Father, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse, we might say dark, generation or world, among whom you appear as lights in the world. 
Paul was not present at the Sermon on the Mount to the best of our knowledge, but he certainly internalized the teaching. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And in so doing, in case you're at all still on the fence about doing good in front of others, doing good such that you might be seen or noticed, keep in mind Christ's own deeds immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 9, 8, when the crowds saw the miracle of Jesus healing a paralyzed man, a paralytic man, they were awestruck. And what did they do? They glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is the model that we follow, even in full dependence upon him as Savior. So when someone says to you, boys and girls, you're just a kid, or when someone says to you, brothers and sisters, you're just an old man, you're just an old woman, you're just a stay-at-home mom, you're just a student, you're just a Galilean fisherman, just a factory worker, you're just a seminarian, you're just a pastor, what do you know? Fill in the blank. When someone says that, that person, as I've already said, is dismissing you as having nothing to offer in a certain situation. If he's being at all nice, he might put it this way. I want you to stay in your lane, keep to your place, or I need you to get out of my way. And you might be tempted in that kind of situation to be offended, to get defensive, to say something like, how dare you? Don't you know who I am? But that's not right. That's not right. Maybe you're a bit less aggressive. And so you might be tempted in that case to then just bow your head, accept the harsh dismissal, and slink away into the shadows where you can safely stay out of the way from such abusive speech. But that's not right either, brothers and sisters. Instead, when you run into those situations... When you're being just dismissed, even with prejudice, so to speak. Someone just sees what you look like and thinks, there's nothing you could do for me. And they just throw you out like a ratty old book, judging you by your cover rather than by your contents. What you should do is remind yourself of Christ's words to his church. His words to you through his disciples here in our passage. Remind yourselves, you are and you yourselves, only you are the light of the world. Remind yourself of that affirmation of Christ, not to make yourself feel better, not even necessarily to change that situation, but to remind yourself that you do have a value, a function, a place in God's world to accomplish his purposes. You will be an instrument in his shining forth the light of the gospel. Indeed, a light as put on a lampstand in his house. And then remember the direction then. So shine your light before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You're just a kid. So be the very best kid you can be, such that those who say that say, you know, that, that's a good kid. God is my help. Well, praise God. Do you get the, the connection here now? Remind yourself that by using this illustration of light, even in three different ways, in these three verses, Christ is defining for us our place, our work, our worth, your place, your work, your worth in the world. And it's an honorable work. It's a noble work. It's a valuable, even indispensable work in God's household. 
to which He calls you. Can you imagine a house without light? No one would want to be in it. And yet, that's how Christ characterizes the church's place in the world. This world would not be worth living in without you, dear believers. Without you as a people shining forth the light of the gospel and the truth. Indeed, this world, as Martin Luther put it, is chock full of devils. Shadowy henchmen of the prince of darkness grim. But, as we know from that same hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. As we know from the full witness and testimony of Scripture, the darkness stands no chance before the light. We see it in nature. Dawn breaks the inky blackness of light as the sun rises into the sky and then reveals everything, brings everything to light in beauty and in splendor, showcasing God's creation and even unveiling the works of darkness that they might be dispersed. And just like the sun, that great lamp fueled by an inexhaustible reserve of fuel set in the sky by our great householder, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. You are appointed by God for the good of mankind. The church has been appointed to hold out the Word of God, that light, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path, to guide and direct those around us to God. This should ever and always be the primary motivation for our evangelism. That indeed Christ has sent us forth for this. It gives confidence to those who are weak need to declare the excellencies of God, to point people to Jesus. So for God's glory, shine your light. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.